where three women with names discuss movies that are about something other than a man. Paid in Puke is hosted by Amy Green, Christina Barr, and Jessica Baxter. It's also a spoiler-filled free-for-all. You've been warned. All right, on today's <laughs> episode of Paid in Puke, we're talking about the 1963 Robert Aldrich film, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, starring Faye Davis and Joan Crawford. It tells the story of a former child star of vaudeville who torments her paraplegic film actress sister in their decaying Hollywood mansion. Sister, sister, oh so fair. Why is there blood all over your hair? Whatever happened to baby Jane? To seek the answer to that question, we will follow a man plotting a murder. Highly specialized work. But Robert Aldridge has considerable experience in such matters. He has a dozen successful pictures to his credit. His stars are Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. The scene, an Italianate villa in a once fashionable section of Los Angeles. Its halls, once crowded with the bright, the beautiful, and the celebrated, now echo only to hectic whispers, the insistent call of a buzzer better left unanswered. A telephone that has become an object of fear. A supper tray that will not be touched. A window barred against the world. A hammer. A mute scrawl crying for help. From these elements, director Aldrich has fashioned a motion picture with a curious title. Whatever happened to baby Jane? Betty Davis is Jane Hudson. Crawford is Blanche Hudson, but we must warn you, if you're long-standing fans of Miss Davis and Miss Crawford, this motion picture is quite unlike anything they have ever done. It is a bold essay in the art of the macabre, a venture to the ultimate reaches of terror. A motion picture definitely not for the squeamish. And we beg you, as the tension builds to the screaming point, as shock after shock assaults your senses, try to remember that this is only a motion picture. Try and remember. No, we, uh, we can't show you anymore. Only when you see whatever happened to baby Jane will you know. And the answer is total suspense. I love this movie! <laughs> So much. It's got so many hot probs, but they're hilarious. They're hilarious hot probs. <laughs> this movie made so much money. It was a smash hit on release. It's kind of funny to think that it made so much money because it's so campy. There's so many plot holes, but people loved it. And it made $9 million in 11 days. And in 1963 money, that is $72 million. <laughs> Wow. Big opening weekend there. Yeah. It's also wild that, like, a movie about two old women was a big hit, you know? Yeah, it really is. I mean, I wonder how much of that was just people knowing about the problems with filming it and everything, and the rivalry between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, and everyone's just like, we have to see the results of this crazy production. Yeah. It's pretty good stuff. One of my favorite fun facts about the look of Baby Jane is that Betty Davis created that look. She insisted on that makeup look. They didn't want to do it. They're like, no, you're going to look horrible. And she's like, that's the point. She wanted it to look like Baby Jane never washes her face. She just keeps applying new layers of makeup. So that was the look yeah. they're going for. I'm going to start with the hot props. <laughs> the hot props are so fun in this movie. Shut up. Hot probs is on. Oh, shit, yeah. Most of my hot probs are, like, characters make dumb mistakes. Like, <laughs> when Blanche is trying to signal the neighbor for help, and it's like, why don't you yell out the window? 
like directly under her, you know. And she's like, please, please, like just yell. Like, what? Why would you not just yell at her? Please. When Elvira leaves the hammer there on the table, like, oh, here's this crazy lady that has tied up her sister and already hated me. I'm just gonna leave a weapon behind me. <laughs> Elvira didn't make any sense as a character because she was like, right. or she, I don't, I didn't get it because she seemed like she really liked Blanche and really was protective over Blanche and was like, listen, your sister is a bad person and she's manipulating you and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I'm just going to leave you alone with her and not check on you. And then the next time I come back, I'm going to take her word for it that you're taking a nap. I got up this morning and fixed the house so you can have the whole day off. Here's your fifteen dollars. Well, thanks, but does Miss Well what I mean is does Miss Blanche know about my taking the day off? Oh sure she knows. Well, all right, if you say so. See you next Tuesday then. Yeah. Have a good time. Bye. She's suspicious but also very laissez faire about it. Right. <laughs> my biggest thought problem was why was Blanche on the second floor? <laughs> In a wheelchair. You need them to be on the first floor. <laughs> yeah, they don't really tell you how long it's been like that. It's It seems like it's been many years of her just being upstairs. They never got any ADA ramps installed. <laughs> they never yeah. They never did anything. She just accepted that as like, okay, I live upstairs now. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's where the bedroom is. <laughs> yeah. It's supposedly a mansion, so surely there's right. a room downstairs they could have fixed up or... Something. You would think, yeah. <laughs> I wrote down everything Edwin does is insane. His whole storyline didn't make a lot of sense to me. Like, I loved him. I thought he was really funny. I gotta love Victor Bono anyway. But I felt like you could have cut his whole character out. And then this is like such a weird movie thing. You know, if you're at someone's house and you hear a noise upstairs, you don't go investigate. When they're like, no, 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 it's not that. I'm going to go see. That doesn't make any sense, you know. But then also, then he just leaves. He's like, all right, I'm out of here. <laughs> none, of, none of that made any sense to me. I mean, I know I think he's supposed to be drunk in that scene. And then he sees whatever he sees. And then he's just like, all right, bye. She's <laughs> trying. It's true, his character does not make any sense and doesn't need to be there. The movie is a little too long, so I guess if you had to cut something, you could cut his storyline. But he does say one of my favorite things in the movie, which was when she tells him her whole plan about her comeback, and he goes, I don't see how you could fail. And I'm going to revive my act exactly as I used to do it. Of course, some of the arrangements will have to be brought up to date. Music changes so much. Doesn't it? And you know, they're desperate for new acts. Television, Las Vegas, and and all the clubs. And Well, there are a lot of people who remember me. Lots of them. I don't see how you could fail. <laughs> so maybe he's only there just to say that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's some crazy stuff going on with him. Like, I really like how he's like, you got to pretend to be my secretary when you call <laughs> to answer this ad. And so she's like, okay, I'm going to pretend to be your secretary. So she lights a cigarette. Why don't you call for me? <laughs> Tell them you're my secretary or something. All right, dear. I'll do that. Now, listen. I won't let them know who I am. You see, I'll just tell them I'm Mr. Flagg's secretary. 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 Huh? <laughs> well, do you know, I do believe your old mum would be a jolly good secretary at that. Yeah, I loved how he interacted with his mom, and I like that he was, like, twice as tall as her. <laughs> and why were they supposed to be British? Like, I don't really... I don't know either, because they clearly were not. <laughs> Those accents were so inconsistent. Like, I loved it, but it's like they weren't going for sense. Yeah. Don't try to make this make sense. That's not what it is. <laughs> That's not what we're doing here. Yeah, it's just kind of like a surreal nightmare 
So there's some dream logic here where people are British for no reason. Victor Buono is British. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's the so much semen. milk drinking by grown-ups, which I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also liked how he, when he was eating breakfast, he had all the little cornflakes boxes. It's like, why didn't they just buy a regular box of cornflakes? <laughs> Where is he coming from? He has all these mini boxes. The beach scene at the very end, I thought was really funny. Like, this whole crowd is watching her dance, and then it's like, there's a dead body on the beach. <laughs> like, they're slowly moving towards Blanche's body in the end. And then it just ends. It was it kind of funny. It takes so long to find her body. She's yeah. right there. Like, they're like, will you take us to her? Yeah, how are you missing her? Like, the cops yeah. are there for a while. She's right there. Yeah. <laughs> I die every time I see this movie. I just absolutely am dying when they're sitting at the snack bar. And they're like, we should go look for this woman. But I suppose we'll never find her. And she's just, like, right behind him. <laughs> you reckon we'll never find that baby Jane or whatever her name is? Sure, we'll find her. But I guess maybe it'll be too late. I love terrible cops in movies. It's yeah. a really good example of cops being so bad and their jobs. <laughs> I guess we'll just sit here and snack while we speculate about this missing that. woman who's dying, probably. <laughs> I also love stuff when, um, like how she orders the ice cream and doesn't pay for it. Strawberry, strawberry, please. Two big strawberries, please. she gives him as she walks away and he's like that'll be i forget what five cents or whatever and she's just like mm. <laughs> <laughs> who's gonna stop me <laughs> i am clearly bad shit you're gonna let me have this ice cream <laughs> that 40 cents is the least of your concerns right now <laughs> <laughs> oh god betty davis is such a treasure in this movie i just yeah. love her i love how she totally embraces the camp like i feel like joan crawford plays it pretty straight and betty davis just completely embraces the camp aspects of it it's so good yeah they're kind of in two different movies mm-hmm. yeah. yeah she's in a better movie by far what betty davis yeah, is it yeah. a better movie? Yeah, yeah. yeah. the Joan Crawford <laughs> version of the movie would be really boring, I think. <laughs> it's so good that we have Betty Davis there to chew the scenery behind boring old Joan Crawford. I'll go through some more hot props. Jane, baby Jane, when she's in the flashback, and they're like, we have to go home and take a nap. She's like nine years old. <laughs> <laughs> she's right to not want to take a nap. That's <laughs> <Right>. too old. <laughs> And then I love how everyone keeps saying it's an exact replica. Genuine exact replica of Baby Jane. Don't forget, there's a genuine Baby Jane doll waiting for each and every one of you right out in the foyer. All you have to do is to go out there and collect her. And kids, remember, you can tell your moms that each and every one of these genuine, beautiful, great big dolls is an exact replica of your own Baby Jane Hudson. Baby Jane dolls are in the trailer quarter. Here they are. Very beautiful. Like, how is it an exact replica when it's half the size of her and clearly a doll? What is an exact replica? (laughs) Oh, and didn't they say it was genuine hair or something? They did. Real human hair. hair? Gross. (laughs) Gross. (laughs) I think that was a true selling point of dolls, though, back then. Because I remember my grandma used to buy me dolls until I begged her to stop because I was terrified of them. (laughs) She did have as a selling point, like, this one has human hair and I was like oh my god they all just ended up in a box in the closet where I imagined they would come to life at night and kill me I've never liked dolls I've always been scared (laughs) of them oh when she leaves the phone off the hook I don't know if it's a hot prop or not because I just don't know what phones did back then but she leaves the phone off the hook and then Blanche picks it up up in her room and there's just nothing it's dead it's making no noise at all wouldn't it be making like that sound or no it only does that it does it for a little bit and then it does just go dead it does okay i didn't remember what happened all right then i guess that's fine okay (laughs) why doesn't blanche ever try to scoot down the stairs (laughs) 
Well, I was I was waiting for that to yes. happen. She kept like looking at it and planning, but then it just never. I'm like, there's gonna be a scene where she tumbles down the stairs. But then when she <laughs> does get down the stairs, she still insists on like pulling herself down the stairs from an upright right. position. When I broke my foot and I was broken for a whole summer, we have two flights of stairs in this house and you have to use them all to live here. I just scooted up and down the stairs all day long. That's the only way to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why she never figured that out. Blanche was so dumb. She is so dumb. She doesn't think someone else could sign her name to a check, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever thought about that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've thought about it. Jane. Did you ever stop to think that if anything happened to me, I I mean, anything bad, there wouldn't be any money for you? I wouldn't be here to sign the checks. You wouldn't even have pocket money. Did you ever think of that? Yeah, I've thought about that. (laughs) I love that so much. That is like one of the best lines, just the way she says it on it. Yeah, I've thought about it. It just takes her forever to do everything. Like, you'd think that she would have plans. All right, the next time uh, Jane leaves the house, I'm going to do this. Or the next time she leaves me alone, I'm going to do this to try to escape. Because she seems like she knows for quite some time that Jane is plotting against her and she's in trouble. So she's like, okay, I'm going to take forever to get down the stairs. And then I'm going to (laughs) call... A doctor instead of like 911. Right. <laughs> I'm gonna call this doctor who doesn't believe me and thinks I'm just a hysterical woman and is like, I don't even understand what you're telling me. And then is so easily manipulated later. I need your help. Is the doctor there? I must talk to him. Well, he's with a patient right now. But I have to talk to him. I've got to. Hold on, please. I'll see if I can interrupt him. Dr. Shelby? Yes, please. He'll tell me that you're a little upset. What seems to be the trouble? It's about my sister. I need your help. I need you here. Here at the house. No. No, it's nothing like that. It's the way she's behaving. You've got to come over right away. Please, before she comes back. I don't quite understand. Is this some kind of emotional disturbance you're talking about? Yes. Yes, she's emotionally disturbed. She's unbalanced. I don't know, Doctor. I mean... You're trying to tell me that she's violent? Yes. Yes, she is. Very well. We aren't getting anywhere like this. That's pretty dumb. I'm going to slowly type a letter. (laughs) All right, I don't have a lot of time. She drove into town. I'm going to get out my typewriter and type with two fingers. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Please call Dr. Shelby at OL61656 and ask him to come here to the house immediately. Please. Under no circumstances let my sister see the contents of this note. Blanche Hudson. And then, of course, the whole, like, fool me once, shave on me with the bird, and then I'm definitely not going to even see what's under it, even though I'm so hungry the next time. And it was, like, a delicious leg of lamb or whatever it was. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't even check. <laughs> there was this um one part where Jane was like behind Elvira and I was just like I don't know. I, I felt like she would have noticed that she was behind her. Oh and then the I really liked the telephone like where she's you know, throws her voice to sound like her sister. <laughs> but then it was like very voiceovery. Yeah. That's because it like, was Joan Crawford. <laughs> it was Yeah, it was voice. it was hilarious. <laughs> What do you mean you can't fill any more orders for me? My sister did. Wait a minute, I'll, I'll put her on. Blanche, would you speak to this man from Johnson's? Hello. Who is this, please? Oh, yes, Mr. Carson. What seems to be the trouble? 
I'm afraid there's been some misunderstanding. I certainly didn't mean to suggest that you shouldn't fill any orders for her. I'll put her on. My biggest one was, why is she on the second floor? I guess that's before the ADA complaint. I don't know. She just was so easily manipulated into becoming a prisoner, basically. Like, she never yeah. argued. <laughs> no, even though I'm the one that makes the money here, I'm just going to let you put me upstairs for the rest of my life. It's great, though. I love every ridiculous minute of this movie. I know, I so wish I could have seen it in a movie theater. This is the first time I'd ever seen it. I could imagine it would be like The Room or like Rocky Horror, like where there's just a lot of audience participation. I, I, I so want to see it in like a midnight movie kind of thing. Yeah. That'd be fun. But like a little <laughs> earlier, like maybe nine o'clock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, maybe they'll show it at the Beacon sometime when we can go to movies again. That would be awesome. Could, we should go. Do they take requests? <laughs> I bet they would. Yeah, so, I bet they would. Or do they have that kind of thing like the Central Cinema has where you can rent it out? They I don't be, know. They might be I open mean, to that, that after this. really cool. <laughs> yeah. Central Cinema probably shows this movie sometimes. I saw it Sunset Boulevard there. It has a lot in common with that movie, I think. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, some critics say that this is part of a genre that Sunset Boulevard is also in called hag horror. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, I don't know if I love it or not, but <laughs> it seems a little... I didn't know that was a genre. <laughs> it seems a little sexist ageist. Yeah. But at the same time, I really love it, so... Next call. Other people who were tapped to play Blanche, I don't know if they auditioned or they turned it down. Olivia de Havilland, Marlena Dietrich, and Tallulah Bankhead. Oh, whoa. So those are some pretty good what-ifs. <laughs> Marlena Dietrich would have been amazing, I think. Yeah, she would have brought it. I mean, she might have given uh, Betty Davis run for her money in the over-the-top department. I don't know. <laughs> Already started underlining meaningful passages in her copy of Moby Dick, if you know what I mean. It's hard to pick a favorite line in this movie, but I think probably, yeah, I thought about that as one of my very favorites. Yeah. Well, that, and of course, the uh, yar in that chair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to do these awful things to me if I weren't still in this chair. But you are, Blanche. You are in that chair. I wrote a couple, but now I don't remember the context. I like in the very beginning when baby Jane will take a nap and you can hear someone in the crowd go, I always say it's the parents' fault in cases like this. Leave me alone, I've had an ice cream! Child of mine, ever tell me like that. If you need an ice cream, I, I guess you better have some. I mean, it's pretty hot and all. But remember, this is the last time this week. All right, Daddy. Blanche wants some, too. We gotta have some ice cream for Blanche. Uh, I, I don't want anything. What do you think you're trying to do? I always say it's the parents' fault in cases like this. I'm really the uh, I wrote that one down, too, because I was like, cases like this? <laughs> How many times has this come up? Right. Yeah, it's always the parents' fault whenever there's a child vaudeville star who won't take a nap. <laughs> yeah. I hate it when that happens. I know. Well, I, it's always the parents' fault. <laughs> I wrote down, how do you figure cops? And I don't remember who said that, but maybe Victor Bono said it because I wrote it right after something about him. It must have been the way that they said it. Oh, officer. There's a car down there parked right out in the road. I almost got stuck in the sand when I tried to get around it. You mean that old Lincoln convertible? That's right. Yeah, that was parked there when we opened up this morning. The keys are there, but I didn't want to move it. I thought maybe... What do you figure? Cops. How do you figure cops? <laughs> I put a star by it. And then also when she says to her, you weren't ugly then. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down, you're just a liar, you always have been, because, like, she really is a liar. Blanche really is kind of a shitty sister, you know? Like, Baby Jane is not a great sister, but Blanche is also not great. They're pretty mean to each other, and Blanche is lying constantly. Like, I really can see Jane's point of view here, because <laughs> Blanche really is 
planning on sending her off to a sanitarium. Right, it is weird. Like, why did they set it up this way? Let's have Jane take care of Blanche forever. It doesn't seem like a very good setup. It's not clear who decided that. (laughs) She could have just hired someone to do that as a job. Not like, okay, now this is Jane's life now. Yeah, I mean, I guess they did hire Elvira. But then also she's like, let's have Jane move into. I guess she felt something. Elvira is only there like a couple days a week or something. It seems like she used to be there more, but then Jane was sending her away more and more. Right. But I mean, I think she's just like a cleaning lady or something, you know? Like, she's not a caretaker. Okay. I don't think. You're right. I yeah. mean, because then when the neighbor asks about her... <laughs> like oh, right. Yeah, she's like, I need a cleaning lady. Is yours available? <laughs> oh, I liked the neighbor and her daughter. One thing I wrote down was after Jane was really rude to the neighbor lady, the woman and her teenage daughter, she's like searching for like a cigarette lighter. And she's like, Jane Hudson makes me so mad. I want to kill her. <laughs> and then the daughter's like, oh, yeah, how do we do that? <laughs> It's just really funny. And she has this really huge old cigarette lighter. It's a funny interaction with the lady and her daughter. That daughter is Betty Davis's real daughter. Oh, really? Yeah. I love how Jane is always asking people, I wonder if you know who I am, and nobody knows who she is ever. Well, my name is Jane Hudson. Maybe you remember me. And baby Jane Hudson. Oh, uh, sure. Uh, thank you. This will be in the paper tomorrow. Who the hell was baby Jane Hudson? It makes sense, though, because the movie starts yeah. in, what is it, 1917, and it's 1962. One of my favorite things is that they're like, yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I guess they're trying to create a sort of timeless vibe. First it was 1917, and then it was 1935, and now it's yesterday. No, it isn't. (laughs) Everybody she's talking to would not have been born yet when she was a vaudeville star, you know? (laughs) You would maybe know a movie star, but why would you know a child vaudeville star? (laughs) Exactly. But it is pretty great, because I do love it every time she's got that twinkle in her eye, when she's like, maybe you could guess who I am. No, I cannot. (laughs) Uh, and then she has the doll, <laughs> genuine doll. <laughs> genuine baby Jane doll. I like when Edwin says, you must have guessed that I'm English in his very bad English accent. And then she goes, oh, really? How nice for you. I'll bring in some tea. You like tea? Oh, yes. I'm quite fond of tea. You must have guessed that I'm English. Oh, really? How nice for you. I love that he and his mom call each other lovey. He's like, hello, lovey. I don't know. I just like that a lot. My other is, I didn't get you your breakfast because you didn't eat your din-din. I'm hungry, Jane. Well, of course you're hungry. You didn't eat your dinner. That's why you're hungry. But you forgot my breakfast. I didn't forget your breakfast. I didn't bring your breakfast because you didn't eat your din-din. I love her whole trolling with the meals thing, where she's like, Did you know we have rats in the attic? Oh, Blanche. You know we got rats in the cellar? great i love it and everything's just resting on a bed of sliced tomatoes i know that was the funny that it's like you went to the trouble to arrange these sliced tomatoes so nicely and there's like a dead rat on top <laughs> i love that you're like still thinking about the presentation of it. <laughs> she takes her pranks all the way <laughs> And she's got this big tray. I love all the shots of her walking up the stairs with the big-ass tray. And she uses the silver, whatever it is. Do people really do that in their own homes? <laughs> cover and yeah, everything. The there was a whole sandwich on that tray, too, you know? Yes. Oh, I forgot about that hot prop, actually, for me, was when she serves the rat. She's got, like, two Yorkshire puddings or something on the tray. Those look good. Eat those. And she was just talking about how hungry she was. 
Okay. Really like, hungry. You're gonna eat whatever you can. That's not dead dinner ass. tray that she doesn't even open. That turns out to just be whatever it is. There was a sandwich on the plate, not covered. Why didn't you eat that? That's obviously not your dead bird or something. <laughs> Blanche makes no sense. <laughs> I don't think you really are that hungry. If you were really hungry, you would eat something. Yeah. Or if you wanted to escape, you would maybe yell at the neighbor. <laughs> Scoot down the stairs. Don't worry about a flashing anybody. No one's gonna see you. Just get your ass to that telephone and call nine one one. I just—it's so crazy that she doesn't call nine one one. Right. At that point, by the time she gets there, did nine one one exist in nineteen sixty two? I don't know. Maybe not. You could call an operator though and ask the police at least or something. Yeah, I feel like that's an old movie thing is, operator, get me the police. Yeah. You know? yeah. It says, no, I'll just call the family doctor and still be so vague. Yeah. <laughs> Jane isn't doing well. It's like, what? I'm in prison trying to kill me, you know? Like, how about that? Not like, oh, Jane has taken a turn for the worse. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't know how to put it. Just spit it out. Boil it down, will you? TLDR, Blanche. Yeah, that is not her strong suit. Blanche does not cut to the chase. (laughs) My only other thing that I've seen anything about Joan Crawford is Mommy Dearest. And she's such a monster in that movie. It was just like, wow, she's such a victim, demure lady. In this movie, it seemed like. It's just interesting to see her. I was expecting her to be like really mean in this movie or something. I don't know. (laughs) The whole thing thing about (laughs) Mommy Dearest is that she outwardly presented herself as being a demure, proper lady. But then behind the scenes, she was... A monster. (laughs) She's just a fascinating figure. (laughs) They both are. That was one of the best things Ryan Murphy ever did was feud. Did you guys watch that? No, I don't know why I did because it's so up my alley. It's so great. (laughs) You should definitely watch it. It definitely covers the whole true story about their Oscar war and how Betty Davis was the only one nominated for an Academy Award for this and how salty that made Joan Crawford and how she was calling all the other nominees saying, if you don't want to go to the Oscars, I'll accept your award for you. (laughs) Which is so funny. How many people took her up on that, actually? (laughs) The miracle worker lady. Oh, that's, um... Oh, Anne Bancroft? Yes, Anne Bancroft. So she ends up getting on stage accepting the award for Anne Bancroft, but she also called Geraldine Page, who was nominated, and Geraldine Page was like, oh, that sounds nice. I don't want to have to buy a dress or fly to L.A. (laughs) So (laughs) funny to think in, like, 1963, people did not give a shit about the Oscars that much. Wow. Like, oh, I don't have to go to the Oscars? Okay, sounds good. But Joan Crawford cared, and then eventually everybody cared as much as Joan Crawford. But that's so funny to think that, like, it was just a burden to actors back then to have to go to the Oscars. But yeah, so Betty Davis was so pissed about that whole thing, about how she got to be on stage anyway, and how, oh, and Joan Crawford was also, not only was she saying, I'll accept the award on your behalf, but she was also calling all the Academy members and telling them not to vote for Betty Davis. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) It was quite a feud. It really sounds more like Joan Crawford didn't like Betty Davis, and Betty Davis was like, well, fuck you too, bitch, rather than like they both had beefs with each other. (laughs) (laughs) Joan Crawford, what a piece of work. Epic piece of work. Oh, I like, you can lose everything else, but you can't lose your talent. Oh, I wish Daddy could be here right now. You can never lose your talent, he used to tell me. You can lose everything else, but you can't lose your talent. And how she's always quoting Daddy. Daddy always said this and that. (laughs) Oh, my God, yeah. When Edwin is looking at all of the sheet music of all of her old stuff, and it's like... (laughs) I wouldn't trade my daddy, and I'm writing a letter to daddy. It was like, yeah. whoa, what's up with all these daddy songs? What is up yes. with all that? I know. I wonder, too, because there's some meaningful looks that their mom gives her backstage. She just seems really pissed about it, and that's when she says to Blanche, someday, you know, you'll be the famous one, and she won't be anybody, and don't forget. <laughs> you're the lucky one, Blanche. Really, you are. Someday it's going to be you that's getting all the attention. And when that happens, I... I want you to try to be kinder to Jane and your father than they are to you now. 
you know what I mean? Uh-huh. I hope you'll try and remember that. I won't forget. You bet I won't forget. I definitely think there's a story there. <laughs> Something's going on that Mama doesn't like. There's some crazy relationship between Daddy and Jane. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, what was that song? Did he write that song? Was he meant to have written all those songs? I Well, I looked up I'm writing a letter to Dowdy and that's a Stephen Foster song. I remember we had to sing Swanee River in a school play once. I think that's the state song in Florida. It does sound like a Stephen Fostery kind of song. I don't know about the I wouldn't trade my daddy one though. <laughs> so it sounds like he just curated a bunch of daddy centric songs. Yeah. <laughs> that makes it was sense. Like he wasn't talented enough to write anything, but he could curate a set list for his daughter and then profit off her talent. That seems in keeping with this character. Right. Yeah. It's a very creepy song. And then it's like, instead of a stand if I put kisses, the postman says that's best to do. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I guess if you're addressing it to heaven, yeah, that makes sense. He's like, yeah, sure, kid, I'll deliver your letter. <laughs> <laughs> Just kisses from you, that's all, kiddo. <laughs> I have to say, I really like the line, you mean all this time we could have been friends. And you mean... All this time we could have been friends. <laughs> Even though I don't think they could have been. I think that the fact that Jane didn't really cause Blanche's accident was not the only thing standing in their way of a good relationship. Right, yeah. <laughs> I still just really like that line and the way she delivers it. But those sisters were never going to be tight. What else does a suicide need, huh? Now, if you'll excuse me. Did it seem like sometimes Jane's mole looked like a heart on her cheek? Yeah, so I think it was supposed to be a heart. Oh, okay. A couple years ago, well, it was a while ago, I was baby Jane for Halloween. And I couldn't find the right sort of period dress, so I just got, like, an Alice in Wonderland dress because it was the most doll-like dress that I could get that would fit a grown-up. But I had the perfect wig, and I had the big bow, and I painted my face all scary white, and I put the little heart on my cheek, and nobody got it. <laughs> Except for my friend Elise, who is... From another era, but everybody else was like, what are you, zombie Alice in Wonderland? And I was like, oh my god, you guys, obviously not. And then, of course, karaoke did not have a letter to daddy, so I couldn't do that as an extra telltale thing. But I will post a picture from that Halloween costume on our Facebook page. Oh, yeah, I want to see that. Because <laughs> I still think it was a good costume, even though no one got it. So... By the way, everybody, just in case this sounds really terrible in post, what happened was our conversation got derailed because everything on my computer just stopped working all at once. All my apps just quit, even though I still looked like I had internet, but then I couldn't open anything. So anyway, now I'm on my phone, and I guess we should probably kind of try to plow through the rest of this, so just in case something else happens. But God, fucking podcasting while in quarantine is not easy. Yeah. <laughs> there was another new SNL this week. I haven't watched it yet, but another new quarantine SNL. It's kind of interesting. Such strange times. Strange and certain yeah, I times. I don't like to see Brad Pitt. He's Anthony Fauci. <laughs> I haven't watched any of those, but I heard that last night they did a What Up With That. So you will be happy. Yes, very much. Sorry, Lindsay Buckingham. <laughs> Well, we better do the lunchtime poll. So this is what's called a lunchtime poll. You're gonna have to think. 
Okay. Why don't you say it, and I can go last, maybe. Okay. <laughs> I feel like we're in a restaurant, and it's like, no, everyone order, and then I'll know. <laughs> then I'll know by the time it's my turn. <laughs> Uh, remember restaurants? I was just going to say restaurants. Yeah, I missed that. places. Restaurants were pretty cool. I'm still pretty pissed about the fact that, like, right before quarantine happened, we were supposed to go have brunch at my favorite restaurant with Amy for her birthday, Tilikum Place Cafe. God, their food is so good. Anyway, the lunchtime poll today is, if you had to be totally dependent on one person to take care of you, who would that be? Who would you trust to do that? I need clarification on this though. Do you mean if you had to trust someone for the rest of your life to take care of you, like you were an invalid, or if you were just sick with, say, coronavirus? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I was thinking the first thing, although I feel like that's too much pressure on anyone, you know? So maybe let's say temporary, because there's nobody that I would want to give that kind of sense to, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Now this is hard, because now I feel like anybody that I would want to have around, like, I also wouldn't want to put that burden on them, you know? Right, yeah. I don't know, now I'm, like, having second thoughts about this whole... Okay, well, I mean, I immediately thought of my husband, Chris. He has taken care of me in the past when I've had to have surgery or when I've... I don't get sick very often, thank God, but he's taking care of me whenever that's happened. Quarantine's been going great for us, but I still really like hanging out with him, so. But it would be really, I mean, I feel like it would totally change the dynamic of a relationship if I was completely incapacitated forever versus the independent woman that I am now, but every once in a great while I need him to, like, make dinner. So, I don't know. It's it's tough. Like you say, that's a big burden to put on somebody, but I can't think of anybody else that I would want to make take care of me in that way other than my my husband who's already pledged himself to me in in that regard. I thought of Andrew too, but then I had the same kind of thoughts of like, yeah, I don't want to start resenting me if if I need his help constantly. But then I also thought of my friend Karen, who I grew up with, and I've known her since the sixth grade and we actually lived together after college and we went through a lot together i took her to the hospital once when we lived in north carolina together we we've like had taken care of each other one time or another and we have sort of a shorthand i feel like that's a good person for that but again i wouldn't want to burden somebody with that well you made me think of the only other person who's taken care of me in the like a long not a long-term capacity, but in a, I was totally helpless capacity like that was my friend Aaron, who was on early in episode. When I had knee surgery, when I was 19, she came and I don't remember if she stayed with me or if she was just coming by several times a day to feed me and she helped me take a bath twice, I remember. I felt super helpless during that time because she had to basically helped me undress and helped me into the bathtub and I was like okay we're bonded for life now because this is really traumatizing for you probably (laughs) and then like the only way I've even been remotely able to return the favor to her is I picked her up from the ER one time when she hurt her finger and I'm like I feel like I still owe you a lot Amy do you know what you want to order yet (laughs) yeah it's like now the more I think about it, the more I realize like it's too triggering for me, kind of, just because I'm a little scarred from someone telling me I should never need them in any capacity. So maybe Erica, who is my sister-in-law, or sister-in-love, as we say, she's kind of like, my, she's my Grey Gardens person. Uh, I guess I would feel like her, or if I can move in with a family, so it's not a one person, like if I could live at your house and be part of it or my friends the walls i'm sort of equally friends with both of them usually kind of like that's my friend and that's her husband but the walls i'm equally friends with them and they have three kids and they're just like a family where the household just sort of functions i feel like i could blend in my sister-in-law erica took care of her mother when she was sick for a very long time like over a year oh and she took care of my brother too when he was dying so see now when i say that i'm like oh she's got the experience of caring for someone but then i don't want to throw it on the file for her <laughs> i don't know this is a question. i guess you have to look at it as you're not starting from an ideal standpoint ideally you would not be 
incapacitated in some way in the first place. So yeah, I guess I'll go with Erica. That seems like a good answer. You know, you could definitely come live here. And I would even build a ramp for you and not make you live upstairs. <laughs> I would try my best to be helpful. Your kids can hang out with me in here while you guys go do yoga. <laughs> You couldn't hear her cord fingers, but they <laughs> Yeah, a yobodo, we like to call it. <laughs> Any order of yoga, donut, and boning is like an ideal staycation date for me and my husband. The yobodo or the yodobo. <laughs> we almost never do a dobo-yo. That's probably the one order we would not do it in. <laughs> but yeah, good answers. I think that wouldn't work out okay. <laughs> it is really tough though, because it does seem like eventually we'd all end up presenting and wanting to kill each other. How very. I saw this movie a long time ago. I watched it with my brother Kevin. There was a while where when I was a teenager, my brother Kevin lived at home, even though he was in his 20s. And we watched a ton of old movies together. Anyway, one day I wrote down when I started watching this, I was like, how much baggage can I bring to a movie? Because being the youngest of five kids, I have a lot of experience with all kinds of sibling rivalry, like being part of it or just being witness to it. And then the dynamic between Jane and Mitch reminded me a lot of my dad and stepmother, like the part where Jane is obviously being terrible and Blanche kind of makes excuses for her. It's like, oh, I'm sure that was an accident. You know, that was very, very much how my dad was about my stepmom. <laughs> like, well, that didn't happen. Oh, I'm sure she didn't mean to. You know? And then just the thing of having to be dependent on someone who is being abusive in some way was also a little bit of a trigger. So I'm like, I brought a lot of baggage to this movie. And then that lunchtime poll is kind of <laughs> triggering a lot of baggage. So you go in thinking this is going to be this campfest that it was, but also it's like, oh man, this is actually hitting a lot of buttons I wasn't expecting. That sounds like my relationship with Mommy Dearest, so I totally feel you on that. Oh, wow. You totally reminded me of something that my stepmother, Tatiana, we didn't know until later, but my older sister, Elizabeth, would send Christmas cards, pictures of the kids and stuff. My dad never saw them, and he didn't know until, like, way later. Wow. Aside from that, but that scene with Elvacra having all the fan mail open. That's kind of a good example of how the pacing in that movie is so weird, because she's like, here's an envelope full of your letters. And Blanche is like, oh, great, thank you. And she buries the lead so hard on it, right? And she's just like, yeah. have you ever noticed uh, they're open already? But yeah. I'm just like, what are you saying? <laughs> That movie's so weirdly written. It's just so bizarre. Everything about it. Sometimes you watch something and it seems like this is more of an idea than worked out the actual plot of this. Yeah. It feels a little bit like every day they're like, all right, let's decide what happens in this scene <laughs> we're shooting today. We've already got everything set up. Now let's uh, let's talk about what everyone's going to do and say. <laughs> like, what? Isn't there a script? <laughs> Maybe there wasn't. I don't know. David Lynch works that way a little bit. I mean, his messiest movie, Inland Empire, was kind of written that way, where he would have an idea, but then he'd get to set and then he'd kind of rewrite it. And <laughs> then he'd be like, okay, here's your new pages for today they're almost completely different than the ones you had i mean i don't know if it's like the best way to make a movie because inland empire does not work all that well but some of the individual scenes are some of the greatest things he's ever done but cohesively it's not that great but he does love those old movies like one of his favorite movies of all time is sunset Boulevard. yeah well it's so good i mean that's just such a truly great classic movie his character's name in twin peaks yeah that's right gordon cole is like a throwaway like we gotta call Gordon Cole. It couldn't have gone better. It's practically set. Gordy has to finish this picture first. Mine will be his next. Get Gordon Cole. Turn to forget about our car. And he's like, what a great name. That time that I was talking about where my brother lived at home and we watched a bunch of old movies together, it was at that time that Twin Peaks was airing. So we actually watched Sunset Boulevard and that was like, Sort of in real time, it was like, where to go? Wait, that's David Lynch's character on Twin Peaks. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, you put that together the old-fashioned way, not like the modern-timey way of IMDb trivia telling you. But only because it was like I watched that movie while Twin 
Olympics was there, you know. I would never have put it together if it was like, oh, I watched Sunset Boulevard five years before Twin Peaks or after. It was during the time that that show was airing and he was a character. Oh, I thought that the young version of Blanche was a very solid child actress for that era. I was just noticed that this time because usually child actors in that era are terrible. And in fact, the child that plays Baby Jane is... Very broad and very much like one of my favorite SNL characters is that Vanessa Bayer over the top child actress. Do you guys do you know that one? <laughs> See Laura's powerful performance in our stage production of The Wolf of Wall Street. My name is Jordan Belfort. On a daily basis, I consume enough drugs to sedate Manhattan, Long Island, and Queens for a month. I take pot to mellow me out, cocaine to wake me back up again, and morphine, well, because it's awesome! I kind of love that style of acting, but it doesn't make for good drama. Child actors today are so talented, like insanely scarily talented, but I just thought that that young Blanche was very good for that period. She was not too campy. And then I also really like that Jane wears heels like all around the house. I don't think I ever noticed that before. She's just like constantly walking up those stairs in high heels. I'm like, you're in your own house. You don't need to be wearing shoes. <laughs> yes. You don't need to be wearing any shoes, let alone high heels. <laughs> I guess that's a little bit of a hot prop, but I also was wondering if maybe it was characterization where she just always wants to look her best, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think she just wants to be glamorous and star-like. I love how she gets all her old dresses recreated by a seamstress. Her frilly child dresses, like, made in adult sizes. That's so great. I had one other thing that just was something I noticed. Jane has all those empty bottles of liquor. Like, there's that shot from inside the liquor cabinet where all the bottles are empty. <laughs> and she kept... that down, like, why don't you throw away the empties? Before I cleaned out my mom's house, I would have said that was a hot prob, but my mom had so many empty containers just stored away. I was like, oh, it's a hoarder thing. Jane's a little bit of a hoarder. <laughs> I also think it's like someone trying to hide a drinking problem. You hide the empties, you know. Oh, yeah. Who is she hiding it from, though? The garbage collectors? I mean, who is she doing anything for? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a great shot, though, for moving the bottles around and frowning. I really like that shot a lot. Liquor cabinet cam. On the next episode of Paid and Puke, we say sure. To Mark Waters' 1997 black comedy, House of Yes, starring Parker Posey. His address is heaven above. I've written, Dear Daddy, we miss you. And wish you were with us to love. Instead of a stamp, I put kisses. The postman says that's best to do. I've written a letter to Daddy saying I love you. If you enjoyed this episode of Paid and Puke, please take a minute to rate us highly on your preferred podcast listening apparatus. If you did not enjoy this episode, no further action is necessary. Paid in Puke is hosted by Amy Green, Christina Barr, and Jessica Baxter. Music by Silent Partner. Follow us on Twitter at Paid in Puke Pod, or join us on Facebook at Paid in Puke Podcast. Thanks for listening. Baby, lick it up.